The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are continuing uh, in our series, it's called Fruit of the Spirit, where we are studying the nine divine attributes that God shares with those who are his children because they have turned from sin to trust in Jesus. Now, the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God literally dwells in those who believe the gospel. And as a result, we have the freedom to walk in and reflect the characteristics of God that are listed here in Galatians 5. So what this is not that we're going to read today, this is not a list of moral best practices that we strive to accomplish ourselves. It is a list of the attributes that will increasingly mark the life of every person who submits to the glorious process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior King. One way to help understand what all of this is, is is to look at the language of fruit. Why are these called the fruit of the Spirit? That's helpful. Uh, God oftentimes uses imagery language to help us understand deep spiritual things that maybe otherwise we wouldn't. Uh, So why are these called the fruit of the Spirit? Well, in the same way that a seed is planted in the ground with all of the genetic potential for a towering and fruitful tree, when the Holy Spirit fills our hearts at the time Jesus saves us by his grace, we now have the power and potential to reflect the beauty of God to the world, a potential that before that we did not have. In the same way that a tree grows over time, becoming ever more fruitful, if properly tended and in the right conditions, we can grow ever more like Jesus if we continue to abide in him and obey all that he has commanded us. And this is according to John 15, and it's harmonized throughout the scriptures. It's a teaching that you'll find all throughout. John 15 drills down on that where Jesus says, abide in me, because apart from me you can do nothing. And so staying close to Jesus is the key to these fruit of the Spirit being exhibited in the life of the Christian. Uh, It's not just trying to white-knuckle it and try harder ourselves. It's important that we understand that. So far in this series, we have studied love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And so today we're going to examine the spiritual fruit of goodness. So we're going to read together Galatians 5. We're going to start in verse 16 and go to verse 24. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, 
to set the table for this, if we have any hope of walking in the goodness of God, we need to first be convinced that God is good. We took time to say these are divine attributes shared with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to have faith to believe that we can increase in goodness if we don't first believe wholeheartedly that God is good. The psalmist says in 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, in Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And even in a book that someone classifies maybe the bummer of all the books of the Bible, Lamentations 3.25, even there we find this encouragement. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. We could have spent all day giving scriptural evidence that the Bible points to God as being good. However, there are many that struggle to believe that God is good. And most of the time this is tied to either or both of these two things. One, some deep sense of personal struggle, a deep, uh, maybe an event or just a prolonged time of suffering that makes it hard for them to reconcile a good, loving God with all of the pain that they have endured. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's more kind of the cosmic or global level. They just look at the brokenness of the world and they have a very hard time squaring that up with a God that is as good as the scriptures declare him to be. And this is, this is understandable, but it doesn't mean it actually represents reality. We have to think about all of what the Bible tells us. This is why here we oftentimes emphasize the importance of the gospel not just being what is laid out in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not just the basics about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but the gospel flows out of a story that is contained in all of the scriptures. We have to go back to Genesis to understand and to see that God creates the world. It is good. That God's intention, he shows his hand in that garden paradise. But we also see that Throughout the scriptures, God most prevalently calls us to relate to him as father. And, and even though the Bible doesn't explicitly lay out all of God's motivations for creation, uh, some people act like it does, but it doesn't, we do know that some of what God was doing in exerting the force and speaking those words, let there be light, and all that came subsequently after, in creating humankind, we see that he was doing, part of what he was doing was bringing to himself and into existence children. He wanted us to be his children. Why else would he invite us to call him father more than anything else? We call God God. We call God judge. He's king. He's all these things. Yet throughout the scriptures, more often than any other thing, we hear God invite us to call him father. We are distinct from the angels. Angels are not called children of God. We are. God had a purpose in creating us. And, and so it, it goes, it follows logically to understand, you know, Jesus, Jesus had no concern whatsoever in Matthew 7 in teaching and uh, trying to help us understand how we relate to God. He says, listen, good fathers know how to give good gifts. How much more will your heavenly father then give good things to those who ask? And so this, this comparison is not reducing God down just to the confines of a good earthly father. He's far better than that. He's perfect in all that he is and does and says. However, the, the comparison is there on purpose. See, God oftentimes in his great mercy towards us will, will make things simple enough for us to understand. God, there's no language that could 
really describe all of how perfect and wonderful and loving and good God is, and yet he gives us these images to help understand. And so what we under, if we know that, we know that God desired us to be children. Well, he didn't create us like angels that are, seem to be more uh, task-oriented and, and just doing what it is that, that God has called to do. God's got a lot of things going on, and, and he he's, needs to sometimes have somebody take care of that, right? I mean, he's, you know, all the universe, kind of there's details, right? You need detail people. That doesn't seem to be totally what he created us for. It seems like we're more relational than that. God has this grand vision laid out in all of the scriptures where the end goal is us and him forever. And it's amazing as you track the story of the scriptures, the whole gospel, you see it, it, it begins to make sense. The evil in the world, we understand, is a, is a part of the fact that there was a tree in the garden. God said, don't, don't eat of that tree. There's just one. Just don't do that. Everything else, I've given you perfection. You can, you can eat of anything else. You can enjoy my presence and all of this perfection. Just don't eat of that one. Well, if you have any familiarity whatsoever with the story, you know we ate the one. It was not God that brought sin into the world. It was us that chose to disobey, to rebel against him. Now, this is where people can wax philosophical. This is where people can begin to say, well, couldn't God have restrained that? Couldn't God have refrained even from putting the tree in the garden? But we get in real big trouble whenever humans begin to say, well, couldn't God have done? That's not a, that's not a humble or wise approach. We need to sit back into our place and understand that God is far above us. All his thoughts and ways are higher and better. But we can, with what he has revealed in the scriptures, understand to some degree what he was doing. Yes, God could have not put a tree in the garden. But let me ask you this. If God's children, would they really be children if there was no option of whether they were going to serve him or not? Is love not somehow predicated upon the ability to not love? If what God desired from his children was real love and real relationship, we can understand to some degree why he... Because I, I, I always like to push it back further. Somebody could say, well, why is the tree in the garden? Or why didn't God stop him? Okay, that's fine. God's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. If you want to really solve the problem, he could have just nixed creation altogether, right? He knew. He knew when he created us what was going to happen. And, and somebody can then try to pin evil and all of the darkness in the world upon God because of his knowing. Or you can understand this vibrant truth. God didn't absolutely know when he uttered the words, let there be light. When he created anything and then set us into that creation. He knew how much trouble we were going to be. He knew all of the pain that was going to result in, in us being created and having uh, the ability to either serve him or rebel against him? Yes, he did know all that. And here's, here's what you're going to have to decide. Is the fact that he knew that mean that he is then the author of evil? Or does it mean that he is incomprehensibly good because he is willing to put up with and to endure? You see, <laughs> each one of us, we, we, are, we are aware of much brokenness. Personally, each of us has gone through things that uh, if things were perfect, we not, would not have gone through them, right? Each of us has experienced the effects of sin in the world. We have all suffered. 
And we all are aware and increasingly aware because of the ability for information to travel around our world what the brokenness of the world looks like. However, every single act of disobedience from the very beginning of humankind God has been aware of. The, the deep pain and the struggle of every human heart God has been aware of. A perfectly loving God and good God has had to endure all of that. And you see it in technicolor when Jesus comes onto the scene. When Jesus lives a perfect life and then he suffers, pays the penalty for all of sin to be forgiven. God is good. God made us for the ultimate destiny of us and him forever. And he has endured more pain to achieve that indescribably good outcome than anyone. God is good. We see it, if you familiarize yourself with the story of Joseph, it helps to understand. This is a quote from Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Who's he talking to? What's that about? Joseph is talking to his brothers there who have just come from uh, their father where they're starving to death because of a famine. That's, where, that's the context of this conversation. Rewind a little bit, and what you'll find is Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, uh, prized by his father, started to have dreams that his brothers and father and everybody would bow down to him one day, didn't have enough, still a teenager, didn't have enough sense to shut his mouth, starts telling everybody, people are jealous, there's also a rainbow coat involved, that makes the brothers jealous, because uh, dad gave him a coat and not us, and so the, the brothers hatch this plan. They're going to, first of all, they, they want to just kill him, but then somebody steps in. One of the brothers says, ah, let's not go that far. So they end up selling him for silver to some slave traders. They drag Joseph off to Egypt, and uh, pandemonium ensues. He's in Egypt as a slave, starts to work his way up, seems like he's finding some favor, then is falsely accused, ends up in jail, is forgotten there, seems like he's left to die. And then because God never had left him, he ends up in front of Pharaoh interpreting a dream. This dream is that there's seven skinny cows eating up seven fat cows. And Joseph tells him, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of plenty, then you're going to have seven years of famine. Pharaoh is real thankful someone knows what the cows eating the cows is about, because that's weird, right? And so he puts a signet ring on him and says, this guy's now second in command, do what he says. So they prepare for seven years. The famine comes. The famine touches all of that area in the ancient world. And eventually, here comes his brothers coming to Egypt to look for food. They end up bowing down before their brother, not recognizing him. As soon as he reveals himself, they are struck with fear because they know they betrayed him. They know they lied to their father. They know they sold their own brother into slavery. That's how we get to this quote. As for you, as he speaks to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. See, friends, not only is that true in that small little window of history, but there's so much of Joseph and his story that points forward to the ultimate culmination of this truth, that in the midst of of all the brokenness and the evil and the destruction that sin has wrought upon this world, God is working for good. God is good. You see, Joseph was sold out by his brothers for silver, was put down in a pit and then brought back up, was put in a place where he was the only one that could bring about the salvation of his family. 
Someone else came along later, and a lot of the facts of his life lined up. His name was Jesus. God works his good. Said another way, Romans 8.28 takes this principle and just speaks it plainly. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, friends, God is good. Even when we don't understand, when our hearts are broken, when we are struggling with the brokenness of this world, when we are not alone, we are not alone and God is good. And how do we know that? He's so good. Not only does he care about it, not only does he does, he, does his heart go out to us? You see, he's not, he's not just good in, in thought. He's good indeed. He came and did something about it. Jesus came and suffered with us. Jesus came and felt the reality of sin with us. Experienced all of it to the full extent. God is good. And the reflection of that we see most clearly is Jesus. Jesus who is called the good shepherd. Who will lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd who will leave the 99 to pursue the one who is lost. Well, that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. Oh, man, it does if you're the one. It does if you're the one. Friends, God is good. There's so much more that could be said about that. We must be convinced. We have no chance. We have no chance to walk out this fruit of the Spirit, this goodness that is a reflection of God's if we don't believe. That he is good. Even if we are firmly anchored in the truth, the reality of God's goodness, it can still be a confusing time to try to walk out the spiritual fruit of goodness in the time and place we find ourselves. You see, many people tend to think that goodness is subjective. And many, think, many who think it is objective are confused about the proper source of its objectivity. What does that mean? Some people think goodness is based upon the whims of each person or the whims of some certain segment of culture that they agree with. There are those that believe goodness is objective and they'll fight you about it, but they're confused about where we get that idea. How do we determine what is good? That's a very interesting, overwhelming, difficult, but needed question to ask in every time and place, but especially right now. And it seems kind of silly that we have to ask it. What is good? If we're going to walk in the goodness of God, what, what is good? You see, we have this weird potential as humans to start defining good for ourselves. And when we do that, we cause all kinds of damage, invariably. Uh, couple examples I thought of. For one, there are, there are a lot of people who think it is good to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving. <laughs> there are some people who believe that's a real life sin. What is good? We're confused. There, there are some people that believe, and mostly, most of these people are in Cincinnati, they believe that chili can have no beans and that it belongs on spaghetti. There are some people that know that's weird. Okay? What is good? I don't know. Not a three-way, you weirdos. Those, those, 
Those are jokes, okay? But, but this is not. This is not. This is Isaiah 5, verse 20. It starts with the word, woe. And let, let me just say, this is not woe like, whoa, that's cool. This is woe like, you're in danger. I'm trying to give you a warning word to just emphasize the fact that you should stop what you're doing right now because if you keep going that way, it's going to lead to utter destruction. Think of the strongest word of warning you can when the Bible says woe, that's what it means. So if, if the Bible says woe, you should go, okay, I'm, I'm going to listen now to this next thing because I don't want to be a part of whatever is being woed, all right? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. We have people today who think good is bad and bad is good. There are many today who think speaking the truth in love is bad if it encroaches upon someone's self-determination or self-expression. We have people who, under the flag of tolerance, believe it is good to silently watch people do the exact opposite of what God has said will lead to true joy and peace, destroying their lives in the process. They'll say, that's good. That's good. You should tolerate. You should, you should have tolerance for everybody's individual choices. It's seen as a virtue. That's good. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. The question then is, and we could, I, I hope that you can think of other examples. I hope you'll begin to look for other examples of where we have gotten so confused about what is good that it is a, a rampant issue for us in our day of people thinking that what the Bible says is good is evil and what the Bible says is evil is good. Hopefully you'll understand that oftentimes you are influenced by those thoughts. We need to have wisdom in a time like this. What do we do? How do we determine what is good? What help can we find? Because it's confusing. It's confusing. The language is confusing. The, the influences and the motives are confusing. Some of it seems to make sense. It can, it, can, it can be dizzying. The Word of God offers us help. Paul, in his instruction to his protege, Timothy, this is 2 Timothy, I'm going to start uh, chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to read you to verse 17. There's help for us here in a time like this. There's really been no time since sin entered the world that fools have not called good evil and evil good. However, uh, I would contend that perhaps uh, we've reached a pinnacle in our day. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Dear friends, here's what we have to do. In a cultural context that can be dizzying, in a time when it is very hard to find some place to grab, to even begin to understand what is good and what is evil. For those of us that care about not wanting to be the subject of a woe to you for calling good evil and evil good, we must cling to God's word and let our understanding of what is good be shaped by it. It is the unchanging truth of God's word that gives us an anchor to hold on to as the shifting sands of majority culture ebb and flow with time. Friends, have you not even noticed that we as humans can't decide what's good and evil? It's not like we could even collectively stay in opposition to what God has said. We, we, we shuck and jive and ebb and flow. We change our minds. It seems like with every new generation, the, 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 the next generation just wants to snub into the exact opposite of what the generation before did. And so we, we change the values and we begin to call what the last generation said was good, evil. And we go back and forth and we're double-minded. And the book of James says double-minded men are unstable in all their ways and should expect to receive nothing from the Lord. We're not double-minded just individually in our foolishness. We're double-minded as a, as a people. We need help. We need God's word as an anchor. It doesn't move. As the storm of deception swirls around us, that anchor does not move. God's word. Do you see? Did you hear what Timothy said? He said it's going to get from bad to worse, the deceiving and, and being deceived. But what is he pointing to, friends? From your childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He says all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction. Where does Paul point Timothy? He points him to the Word of God. It's the Word of God that we need. We must cling to it. Are you using a dramatic word there because you're a preacher? No. I mean that word. Cling to it. Because the, the current of deception is, is stronger than you realize. And you get pulled into that more often than you realize. There is a constant barrage of counter-truth masquerading as wisdom, masquerading as somehow more loving or more tolerant than the God who made us and the God who gave everything to have us. There's something interesting in verse 12 I think we need to point out. It's going to be helpful for us in this cultural moment. It says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that when I read it? I hope, I hope your ears perked up. And I, I hope you, you went, what? <laughs> let, let me just say it again. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like all, all? What's the Greek say? <laughs> All. Friends, what does that mean? All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Friends, if we're going to stand for what the Bible says is good, 
you need to understand. You're going to be persecuted for that. And this has, this has stood true through all of time. This has stood true even when Christendom had an iron grip upon America. And everybody you asked, if you asked them, the statistics would be dizzying if you go back to the 1950s of how many people would have claimed affiliation with Christ. But Christendom or the, the facade of religion is, is not what Paul's talking about here. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, there's a difference between living godly in Christ Jesus and having the form of religion. The outward trappings. And here's, this, it's very timely we find ourselves here, okay? Because we need to understand that currently in our country, we live in what is primarily a two-party system. Okay, and we need to understand that. Uh, and, and some of you, some of you are going to get real excited about this, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I hope there's emails. It'll be fun. Okay, because some of you believe that the political party you're affiliated with is the only one that represents Christ fully and completely, and you think somebody that is on the other side, you agree with the billboards. And you agree with the, the angry rhetoric that says somebody that sees things through a different political lens couldn't possibly be following Jesus or seeking to live godly. Here's the reality. Let's, let's just take one example. We could do hundreds. Let's just do one. Okay? What does the Bible say about taking care of the poor? What did Jesus teach about the poor? If you read the New Testament... And you don't think in following Jesus you need to care deeply for the plight of the poor and the oppressed, then I don't know what you read. Matthew 25 seems to be linking goats and sheep getting separated based on how they dealt with the poor. Now, I'm not preaching a works based righteousness. We understand that through the lens of if Jesus has really changed you, you're going to care for the poor, okay? But but who that, that tends to be a that tends to be a issue championed by those on the liberal end of the spectrum, does it not? It does. Okay? What does Jesus teach about human sexuality? That it belongs within the beautiful boundaries of marriage. And that marriage is defined through God's word. Okay? That's a conservative issue. Okay? So if any of you thinks you can find a tribe or, or find a group and align yourself with that, and then you're not going to deal with any persecution because you've got a big group around you, here's the problem. You've, you've, had to, you've had to sacrifice something to run with that tribe. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that every Christian should be apolitical? Absolutely not. Daniel was involved in politics. So was Joseph. Pretty, being the prince of Egypt, right? It's a pretty, pretty high political position. We absolutely can be involved in the political process and should be as citizens of a republic. We have a responsibility to do that. However, we need to think more than we do sometimes. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And you need to understand that if you're going to 
desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that you're going to be persecuted from both sides. There's somebody else that that happened to once. Oh yeah, his name was Jesus. Hmm. There's a little bonus for you there a couple days before the election. A little Shooter McGavin there. All right. That was fun, wasn't it? I welcome your emails. As we think through these things, uh, we must always remember why we do. Why we do is just as important as what we do. Matthew 5.14 says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Greek word for goodness here in Galatians 5 is agathosun. It's defined as uprightness of heart and life. And you're going to find a consistency throughout these. If you go and actually look at the Greek and you look at what these words are conveying, none of them stop at just an ideological expression of the fruit that's being given, right? Goodness here is not just, it's, it's not like um, <laughs> that gift that ends up getting put in the closet to hopefully be re-gifted later. You know, the whole, it's the thought that counts, it's, it's not, that's not it, man. It's not just the thought that counts. This is a goodness of heart, but also it's a goodness of life. And agathosun is goodness for the benefit of others, not goodness simply for the sake of being virtuous. Okay, so in this we see the echo of the first fruit of the Spirit as the scriptures define it. If you go back to first fruit, right? I told you it's the one ring that rules them all. The first fruit here is love. And you'll, you'll hear the echo of the scripture's definition for love in the explanation of all of the rest of these fruit. That is absolutely true when it comes to goodness. You see, I read you there what, what Jesus said in Matthew because he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. It can be sometimes difficult for us to really sort out what our motives should be in seeking to walk in the spiritual fruit of goodness. And first and foremost, it needs to be out of obedience to Jesus, not so that he will love us or not so that uh, he will forgive us of sins or hopefully you know, take some of, uh, some of that bad stuff we did earlier off of our account because we know that Jesus paid it all, right? And what we're doing in seeking to walk out the spiritual fruit of goodness is, is simply express our gratitude for the fact that he has already done all that is necessary for us to have hope in this life and for eternity. That Jesus is our perfect Savior. And, and so the motive should be love for God that causes us to walk out goodness. But there's this other motive listed here and it can get confusing. You see, uh, last week I made fun of you or anybody else that does something kind but is making sure there's always a camera or you know, doing the selfie stick themselves to make sure somebody sees the act of kindness. And, and that's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, we see it all the time. You'll see it on social media and, and, and other places. Um, 
But here's, here's something interesting. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus teaches this, this degree of visibility in when we're doing these good things, when we're walking in goodness, that there's a reality to the fact that he wants to let the light of his goodness reflect to the world through your goodness. And so how do we, well, how do, we do that, right? Because we're not supposed to do things to be noticed, but Jesus is saying he wants people to notice that you're doing good things. Friends, the key, is, the key is our heart. The key is what's going on in here. And only you and Jesus know that. Half the time, you don't know it. Only Jesus knows 100% of the time, but we need to be aware. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help, that we can assess the motives for why we're doing what we're doing. Are we doing good things because we do get a rush of oxytocin and it makes us feel good? Well, friends, that's, that's not good enough. That's that's. That's a self-serving motive. That's, that misses this greater and more beautiful truth that God deserves our allegiance and deserves us seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to emulate his beautiful ministry upon the earth where he met the needs of basically everybody he came in contact with that, that would meet him in faith, right? But part of what we need to see here is, is not... If, if our motive is that we want people to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. You see, if, you, if you're doing good works because you want to feel good or you hope somebody will think good of you, then you're seeking not to glorify your Father in heaven, but to glorify you right here, right now. But there is an ability to, have, to, to be sensible about the reality of doing good works in the world in a visible way that people will see the light and beauty of God who sent you to do those good works. I know that's difficult to balance. It seems like it'd be easier just draw a big black line, right? If you're going to do something good, wear a disguise, make sure there's no cameras around, and don't let anybody know. It'd be either that or, you know, just go full bore, wear a body cam, and do good stuff all the time. And you know, live stream. It's, it's neither one of those. It's, first of all, do I desire to walk in the goodness exhibited by Christ Jesus? Do I desire to reflect the goodness of God in my character and the way I treat people, how I choose to allocate time and resources? Is, is, that, even, is that even a desire? Do I think about that? Okay. Well, if the, if, if the answer to that is no, then that's where we start. God, please help me to have a desire to walk in the goodness of your spirit. And then from there, we ask God to constantly help us to assess our motives, understanding that sometimes God may put us in a position to do something in a very visible way, and it's on purpose, because God wants to use your willingness and obedience to show somebody how good God is, to glorify our Father in heaven through our good works. So we tend to like cleaner answers than that, so what do I do? You're going to have to be led by the Spirit if you want to walk by the Spirit and if you want to exhibit the goodness of God with beautiful motives instead of jacked up ones. See, part of what this does is keeps us from running out here thinking we can do this. This pushes us back to John 15. Abide in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not convinced yet, come back next week and I'll try again. 
Because that's basically all I'm doing, is trying to push you to Jesus. If you'd understand how much you need him. We need him, friends. We need him. And he's good. Walking in love and walking in goodness are almost synonymous. And if we keep loving God and loving people, if we keep those things at the high place that they deserve to be in our hearts and minds, we will reflect God's goodness to the world. This, as the rest of the law and the rest of what God calls us to, really boils down to loving him. That's what motivates us, desiring to walk in this goodness. And then loving people as an outflow of it. Praise God. May we walk in the goodness of God, reflecting to our broken world the irresistible light of his gospel for our joy and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for leading us through this journey, understanding what these fruit of the Spirit are, how it is we can walk in them. Thank you, Lord, that you have made it possible that we can live as free men and free women, sons and daughters of God, that we don't have to any longer live enslaved to sin, to lusts, to those things that used to drive us, but we now have the freedom, the ability to obey you. Thank you, God, for the beautiful truth that that is where peace and joy and hope is found. Lord, please forgive us for every time we have foolishly thought our way would be better. Father, forgive those of us who have doubted your goodness as a result of pain and struggle. God, please meet us there in the midst of that. I know there are people within the sound of my voice, Lord Jesus, that they're still the, the math doesn't add up. Their pain is so deep they can't see past it to see your goodness. God, I ask you to meet them there, to be gentle and tender with them, to speak hope and to show them to draw them by your kindness, God, into a deeper relationship with you, that they may trust the beautiful declaration of your word, that you are good. May they taste and see, God, that you are good. Lord, please help us. Please help us walk out goodness. God, please help us walk out goodness with the right motives. Lord, let love be our God. Love as you have defined it, not as somehow at times we mess it up. May we walk in your love. May we walk in your goodness. May you be glorified as your children do these things. God, we want to be that city set on a hill. We want to be a beacon of hope, a reflection to this broken world. That there is hope and life and love to be found in you. We can't do it without you. We lay ourselves at your feet and say, Lord, here we are. Use us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org